Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Paul Taylor, who is Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Uh, Professor Taylor focuses on the philosophy of race. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your essays, uh, Taking Post-Racialism Seriously from movement mythology to racial formation. Mm -hmm. um, you say this essay reconsiders the prospects for post-racialist discourse. Uh, you say critics tend to take, uh, tend not to take seriously enough the strongest case that can be made for viewing contemporary US racial politics through the post-racial lens. Um, before we start, Paul, um, what exactly is post-racialism? Well, that, that's actually the challenge, right? So one of the things that essay means to do is tease out some, uh, some of the possible answers to that question and distinguish them with some care yeah. uh, because people often run them together and they assume that the simplest, crudest answer to that question is the only answer. And then they fail to map the possibility space effectively. So, so my answer to that, it, it may seem like a preliminary question, but it's actually at the heart of the matter. It's the heart of the matter. So, um, yeah. so I'm happy to answer it. I just want to frame it first. That's all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even before that, I, I want to spend a little bit of time to, to sort of um, think about racism uh, in more abstract terms. So uh, is there a definition for racism? Oh, there are many definitions. Yeah. Um, as you know from your many conversations with, uh, with many of my esteemed colleagues in the discipline, one of the things we do is argue about what things mean. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there are a great many ways to define racism. Different people have different views on it. Uh, the view that I find most compelling is a view that doesn't attach a great deal of weight to the actual content of the term. The, the, on this view, the notion of racism is like a free-floating uh, marker for morally objectionable behavior that has to do with race. And it can cover anything from a racial slur to 
attempted genocide, right? So it's a huge class of possible activities, events, states of affairs. Uh, and we use the word racism to do a certain kind of ethical work in that space. And what kind of work it does depends on the setting we're in. So it's important for people who adopt the view I've just described to, to say the things I've just said. Yeah. Because a lot of times we end up arguing about the meaning of the term and its application. Are you calling me a racist? What do you mean calling me a racist? <laughs> I'm not a racist because of these following things, right? right? Instead of arguing about that, we can just take the, take the marker for what it is. It points us to something morally objectionable. And then we deal with the thing itself. Right. So, so I understand that tactically. I want to get your perspective on it. When I think about racism, sometimes I think about, you know, the the Homo sapiens, uh, right from the beginning, um, had this issue. Right. Uh, they had clan clashes. Uh, there were there were no differences in race then, uh, but racism as a broader concept. Uh, I would think has been with Homo sapiens right from inception. Uh, now, from from your definition, um, racism appears to be specific to race, um, but but would you consider, let's say, you know, uh, two religious factions treating each other along the same lines? Would you consider that to be racist or something different? I think it can be racist, right? So the way, so a, a complement to the view that I just offered you is a, a view that thinks of race talk, race thinking, racial discourse as a resource for engaging in all kinds of political activities, right? So you can racialize political differences, you can racialize ethnic differences, you can racialize religious differences. Some people think this is one of the keys to the development of modern race thinking, the, the form of race thinking that defines the modern world is in the way most people talk about it, is that we anthropologize certain kinds of religious differences, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, differences between, for example, Jewish folks and Christian folks, right? Or between Muslims and Christian right. um, So yes, it is certainly the case that racial differences can be, uh, or excuse me, religious differences can be racialized uh, one of the interesting things about racism in the contemporary moment, in the, in the wake of or as distinct, for example, from the kind of racism that we associate with the Nazis and the Holocaust and uh, the scramble for Africa and that sort of thing, is that it, it latches on to all sorts of differences, cultural differences, yeah. while, while explicitly refusing the label of racism, right? I'm not racist. I don't have anything against those people. I think they're fine. They're just not like us, right? So they don't need to be here, right? Uh, so this this actually brings us back to your first question. One of the mechanisms of a kind of post-racial racism is precisely the thing I just described. I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about culture or religion, but it's deeply racialized. Deeply racialized. And, and more broadly, um, you know, there is this concept called, uh, as you know, Dunbar's number. Um, if, if you look at societies, it appears that when the, when the number gets about 150, early on, on in Homo sapien progression, clans never exceeded 150. When they exceeded 150, all sorts of hell breaks loose. Uh, they start to fight. Um, and so, you know, this, this need to segmentize this need to um, look at somebody else and say that person is different mm -hmm. uh, is integral to uh, to human. It, it seems to me. 
Yeah. I think something like that is surely right. And it's not just humans, right? There, we are not the only social animals. We like to think we are sometimes, but we're not. Uh, we're not even the only animals that are interested in play or aesthetics or any of that stuff, right? right? But we have taken this to a level that you don't see in the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, so yeah, part of what it is to be a social animal is to, as you say, segmentize, right? To take seriously the the differences that allow you to distinguish yourself from others, right? And that gives you the raw materials for all kinds of misbehavior and morally objectionable outcomes. And humans have taken that to a to a really uh, profound level. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this term post-racial, um, I, I want to come to the essay uh, in more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, this term post-racial more generally, uh, again, uh, I don't know a lot about this, Paul, so I want to get your perspective. So if you think about religion, for example, it appears that the that the track of let's say religious people against non-religious people, agnostics and atheists, mm-hmm. uh, the, the latter group is increasing in the world. Um, it appears to me, and the younger population appears to be less religious. Uh, I I don't have any data on it. I'm I'm just making a speculation. Um, if that if that is true, are we taking those those, those sort of a religious racial uh, divisions to uh, to more of a post racial society, or we are nowhere close to that? Oh well, we're we're very close to getting outside of my wheelhouse. I'm not a scholar of, of religion, but uh, let me let me start with the post racial stuff, and then I'll 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 connect it to religion and and we'll see if that goes the direction you're interested in. Uh, So here's one of the things I wanted to do in the piece on post-racialism. I wanted to to locate it historically, locate the emergence of a kind of post-racial discourse historically, and then talk about the political work it does and the oversights it encourages us to accept, right? So the language of post-racialism really became popular as Barack Obama became popular. It became popular in part because people were encouraged by his rise to say things like this. Oh, well, the bad old days of American racism are behind us because look how popular this guy is. (laughs) Right. So we are post-racial. Yeah. By which some of them meant we are post-racist. Right. Those days are over. That's obviously false. Right. It was to some of us obviously false then, but it was. It is clearly, obviously false now, but there's another thing you might have in mind in talking that way that gets obscured by the obvious falsity of that very crude version of the claim. The more complicated version of the claim is, well, racism still exists. Bad things still happen in the name of race, right? But it's different, right? The Holocaust is not happening now, the claim goes, right? We're not doing the stuff we used to do in the 1950s and 60s, the claim, or 1890s, the claim goes, right? So we are, are, mm -hmm, go ahead. It it became less problematic and and, uh, that that is good. Right, so we are post-racial, one might claim, and some people did claim, historian David Hollinger for one. We are post-racial in this sense, right? We, things have changed and we need to take seriously the degree to which things have changed because taking that seriously points us in the direction of a better future, right? right. That's a much more complicated view and it's much more plausible. I happen to think it's still wrong, right? Um, the problem with it is, as some people, historian Waldo Martin, among others, pointed out is that Yeah, things have changed, but change is not always for the better, right? Sometimes things simply shift and they're bad in other places in ways they weren't before, right? 
which is where the argument about what some people call cultural racism, the, the argument I gave you earlier, this was where that argument comes in, right? So yeah, things have gotten better with respect to the old mechanisms of racial domination, but now look at what we're doing to immigrants, right? Now look at what we're doing to Muslim immigrants in particular. Now look at how our political language is populated by sort of stock characters, the terrorist, the immigrant, right? The welfare mother to go back a few decades, right? So the language of post-racialism in this more complicated sense can still be a problem because it obscures the shifts in the mechanisms of racial domination or racial oppression or racial injustice. This finally brings me to your question. For me, this is where religion comes in, right? Because we use, many of us, under the right conditions, we use markers of religious commitment and conviction Mm. as in the way that we used to use markers of what we would sort of uh, in uncomplicated ways have thought of as racial difference, right? If you worship in a certain way, if you wear clothes that signify your religious commitments in a certain way, then you have singled yourself out for a certain mode of mistreatment, right? Uh, So to me, that's where religion comes in. Yeah, that is also appears to be, Paul, a measurement problem. Uh, And so, you know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, President Obama's rise 2008 to 2016, we had a regime uh, and we had another one uh, from 2016 to 2020. Um, and if you if you take some measurements uh, in the in the initial regime, uh, you get some results, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything uh, because I think, uh, you know, it's a bit like, the underlying disease remains, uh, even though the symptoms, the temperature is lower, you know, stuff like that, but it, it doesn't necessarily have done anything to the underlying disease, it seems to me. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, some of us now are comfortable using language uh, to talk about racial politics in the U.S. in particular that would have seemed almost blasphemous just a few years ago, right? Some of us are talking about Uh, the second redemption, right? So what happened in the U.S. in the wake of the Civil War in the 19th century was that the project of Reconstruction was short-circuited and white supremacy was in certain ways vindicated, right, restored, and uh, the Jim Crow era began. That was the first redemption. We're doing it again, right? We've, We've vindicated a certain kind of commitment to the politics of whiteness. Yeah. Uh, in, in some cases, very clearly and explicitly recycling the symbols from the first iteration, right? Uh, so yeah, the disease never went away. We treated some of the symptoms. Things look better for a little while, but it's back. Yeah, so that, that's a complication, right? So when we think about post-racialism as if something has uh, fundamentally changed, uh, it doesn't uh, at least on the surface, it doesn't appear to be. And so this language, if I understand this correctly, Paul, this language around post-racialism uh, creates a lot of noise um, and and may not be beneficial. Uh, I'm just making a statement. Is that, w- would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would put it even more strongly, right? Yeah. Um, it's not only that, so one 
one, the first piece of it is that the, the language of post-racialism can obscure what's really happening. It can divert our attention. It can distract us. It can make us think things are better than they are. So it's just misleading, right? That's the first level of the problem. Yeah. But it's worse than that, right? It actually, as you say, makes things worse in a certain way because it is misleading and all of that. And it's even worse than that, right? It's that, and this is my view, it's not a view I've invented. I share it with lots of people. Uh, sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva is one of them. The lang language of, language like post-racialist language, there are other forms of it, right? Yeah. Uh, not only misleads us and obscures the social realities from us, but it becomes a kind of Trojan horse or stalking horse for uh, the very problem we're trying to solve, right? So the, uh, the urtext for this for me is uh, the decision that Justice, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court John Roberts wrote in a school desegregation case involving school districts in Seattle and, and Louisville, Kentucky. And he said in the middle of this decision that struck down a desegregation policy that the school districts had established, um, the way to stop uh, discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. Period. Which is to say, you cannot take race seriously in constructing this policy that's meant to ameliorate racial injustices, because that's just the same thing as discriminating by race, right? And so you wipe away this mechanism that could solve the problem, which has the consequence of making the problem persist or allowing the problem to persist, right? And so the language of post-racialism or colorblindness, right, race-neutral language in a variety of settings becomes itself the mechanism for the uh, worsening of certain kinds of racial disparities, certain mechanisms of stratification. This is why some scholars, Eduardo Benilla Silva, again, is, is chief among, uh, first among equals here, uh, talk about colorblind racism, mm. right? Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, so, so, so I want to get, um, I want to understand this uh, from, from your perspective. So, you know, for, for, for instance, you know, I, I grew up in India. I came to the U.S. a uh, long time ago now. Um, and I would consider myself to be sort of a globalist. And um, I, would, uh, I would argue that science, for example, hasn't done a really good job uh, in, in really educating people that we have 8.3 billion copies, essentially 8.3 billion clones of the, of the same thing. Uh, with with very little difference, mm -hmm. um, so that is not well understood by the eight point mm -hmm. three billion people. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know if science, you know, has to take maybe some accountability for that, or maybe education systems or whatever. You know, uh, I don't know exactly how how to go about it. Uh, but my instinct would be to say we want to head in that direction. Now, you you, um, you know, it's a bit like your color blind racism problem. Now, th that is, you would argue that is not really the way to think about it, right? That, that which one is not the way to think about it? Um, you know, essentially saying, you know, like uh, Justice Roberts' uh, argument uh, and the colorblind racism that you talked about. Right, right, right. Uh, yep. Is that is that a way forward from a solution perspective? It, it assumes a problem with that idea, which, which I, I tend to have, is that it assumes some initial conditions. And those initial conditions, if they don't exist, you can't really implement anything, I think. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, colorblindness is a beautiful ideal. It is a version of, a, of older 
ideals of sort of basic humanism or universalism, right? It's, it's a beautiful ideal, uh, but it's not, a, it does not provide immediate policy guidance, right? If I want to, if I want to create the conditions under which people are treated with equal concern and respect in particular settings, I have to deal with the mechanisms that stratify them in those settings, right? Yeah. And if I, if I mobilize the language of universalism in a way that blinds me not just to the differences between humans, but to the differences that emerge because of the mechanisms of domination and stratification, then I can't create the conditions under which they're treated with equal concern and respect. I have, I have obscured from myself the problems I need to be trying to solve in the name of universalism and humanism and so forth. So, so yes, that's exactly right. Colorblindness is a beautiful ideal. Maybe, let me say a word about that. Maybe that's a beautiful ideal, <laughs> but it does not provide immediate policy guidance. Here's why I say maybe. Yeah. Remember the conversation we had just a minute ago or the bit of the conversation we had a minute ago about the basic mechanisms of social segmentation, mm -hmm. right? depending on how you think humanism or cosmopolitanism or, or universalism, depending on how you think those things work, you might find them in tension with the basic truths of humans, the basic truths that pertain to humans as social beings, right? Yeah. Universalism is too abstract. We don't live in the universal. We live in concrete communities and neighborhoods and families. And, and so universalism not only does not provide immediate policy guidance, it does not track the realities of human experience, one might argue, yeah. right? Yeah. That sound right? It, it, sounds, it sounds right. It, it is like you say, it's a beautiful idea. Uh, you said maybe a beautiful idea, um, but it requires, you know, I sometimes think about this, Paul, as sort of a level one and level zero societies, right? Mm -hmm. We assume to be uh, in a level one society, things things are, you know, your, your uh, policy guidance, your prescriptions are all very different. Uh, but it is uh, potentially nearly impossible to rise from a level zero society that we are in today uh, with all the segmentation schemes in place and, and with all the baggage of history in place. Mm -hmm. uh, we might never be able to get to level one. And so all these sort of abstract, beautiful ideas um, you know, they don't really help us, right, from a, from a practical perspective. Yeah, they, they don't help us unless we're very careful about what we're doing and how we're using them, right? Yeah. Uh, which is why it's important to draw the distinctions that philosophers and others love to draw, right? So if we're talking about ethical universalism, right, yeah. the, you know, the, the theories of right conduct or the good or virtue that encourage us to treat people in certain ways, irrespective of morally irrelevant differences between them, that's one thing. But to translate that immediately into a, a philosophical anthropology, to a view of what counts for being human as such, that's a very different thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so maybe this is the way to talk about it. We can translate it into or map it onto the distinction that political philosophers sometimes use between non-ideal theory and ideal theory when it comes to thinking about things like justice, right? So I can tell you an ideal theory story about what justice ought to be under certain kinds of conditions, mindful of the fact that those conditions do not obtain in natural societies, right? Yeah. And then maybe, some people argue, I can use my ideal theory as guidance to navigate in the real society, right? Maybe. Other people argue, well, no, the ideal stuff's just going to mislead you. But structurally, there is that possibility. Uh, and so we have to be clear about how we're using appeals to the universal or appeals to the human as such. 
Yeah, so I, I want to pick up on one thing. So morality and racism. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, you know, uh, from a purely economic perspective, Paul, if you're running a company, for example, mm. you can demonstrably show that having discriminative policies in place um, reduces shareholder wealth. Mm. If the CEO uh, has some, some, you know, something like that, you can demonstrably show that he or she is not doing her job, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a question of morality, it's a question of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is a situation where uh, apparently that person has some utility coming from other avenues that she is willing to take up for uh, by actually giving out money, right? Mm -hmm. It is an irrational thought process, uh, but we see it all the time in companies. Yeah, that's surely right. Um, and the, the, the ongoing revolution in behavioral economics and behavior science put an even finer point on this, right? Yeah. So it's not just that there are hidden utilities that are not being uncovered by our sort of classical rationalist account of what's happening. It's that people, people are willing to create the conditions under which they cannot see things that are right in front of them because of the heuristics that guide them, because of the biases that they bring to the work that they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's even deeper than just, I've got a different account of what's rational for me, right? It's, as you say, it's a kind of irrationality, but it can be structured. We can tell, in a, we can tell a structured story about it. This is one of the wonderful things about uh, behavioral science. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this stuff is very, it, it's, it's deep seated and very powerful in ways that sort of straightforward models of rational agency don't really account for. Mm. It is, it is truly irrational, but, but, uh, Paul, would you say that the person practicing racism doesn't actually see it? Oh, sometimes. I certainly didn't mean to suggest all the time, but sometimes, sometimes, sure, right? That's how racism works. That's how racial discourse works. So let me make a connection that's like one we've already made. We've already connected race thinking in a way to very deep sort of primordial mechanisms for sorting humans into smaller groups, right? the emergence of the social. Right. There's a way in which race thinking taps into even deeper mechanisms that have to do with just how thinking works. Right. We think by appeal to concepts and stereotypes and images and so forth that simplify the flux of experience for us. Right. So there are some things we just don't have to think about because the concepts think about them for us. Right. So that's a very basic feature of human cognition and human experience. Race thinking takes advantage of that, too. Right. And ratchets it up to a whole new level. So I don't have to think about how smart you actually are, right? Or how talented you are or how much you know, because I can look at you and decide immediately, mm. right? Without even thinking about it, this is how cognitive heuristics work. Yeah. I can look at you and know, or feel like I know, what you're about, right? And so sometimes, and, and this is some of what the appeals in recent decades to implicit bias are trying to get at, right? There are things we do without thinking, right? There's a second layer processing that goes on behind the curtain and racism takes advantage of that, yeah. right? The challenge though is when those things are brought to our attention, what do we do with them, right? And that's when the conscious version of it comes into play. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, Paul. So it, it's sort of cognitive cost minimization process, <laughs> so, so to speak, right? Uh -huh. yep. um, and so, 
if the brain is, you know, sort of instinctively trying to minimize um, cognitive cost mm-hmm. in decision making, uh, racism is a good tool. Yep. Not good, quote unquote. Uh, it's effective. A <laughs> uh, that allows the brain to do that. And if yeah. that is true, then um, then then we are in a little bit of a um, little bit of a bad situation because it is we are then determining that it's a hardware issue, not a software issue. Oh yeah, it's even worse than that, right? It's um, not only is it an effective mechanism for. Um, ensuring a certain kind of cognitive efficiency. It is an attractive mechanism. It is a mechanism that we are effectively committed to. It feels good, right? And so there are all of these things that we do in the name of race and race thinking and racism that are about our affective attachments to certain ways of going on, right? So it's not just that this is a labor-saving device for the calculating machine in our heads. It's that the labor-saving device has sunk its roots so deep into us that we become unnerved and discomfited and unhappy when the things that make the mechanism go are are interrupted or interfered with, right? right. So this is why one of my, my favorite authorities on this is the great American writer James Baldwin. He says in The Fire Next Time, there are all sorts of things that, I'm paraphrasing because he's a beautiful writer and I uh, uh, am not, <laughs> Um, he says, uh, America has destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives in the name of race and doesn't know it and doesn't want to know it. Right. So it's not just that there are things I haven't seen or can't see. It's that I want to create the conditions under which it's harder for me to take the social world seriously in its fullness, because doing that will be challenging to my sense of myself. It will make me unhappy. It will be unpleasant. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's little bit um, uh, I don't know how to put it. You know, if, if this is true, um, this meaning, you know, it's sort of inherent and and internal to a human being. Then any policy that we can devise, everything is going to be somewhat symptomatic, right? Uh, we can alleviate pain. We can, you know, get a person to sleep or whatever, right? But the underlying disease remains because you cannot cure it. Well, um, I don't want to go that far. <laughs> I hope I hope we don't have to go that far. Yeah. Uh, one of the wonderful things about humans is that, and you know, Immanuel Kant captured this beautifully. I don't usually quote Kant. I'm not going to quote him now. I don't usually refer to Kant. Uh, but one of the things he captures beautifully is the the gap between the world that is governed by causal forces and the world that is uh, in which notions like freedom actually do some work, right? Uh, so humans have the capacity to reflect on the things that cause us to be what we are and orient ourselves to them differently. We can adjust our habits. We can uh, reframe our engagements with the world. We can reorient ourselves to the pictures and the stories we tell our pictures we provide ourselves the stories we tell ourselves and so there's room to maneuver right this is a this is a way of i've just appealed to Immanuel Kant. this is a way of thinking that and for my purposes uh reaches its apex in the figures that come after Kant, uh, who insist on using organic metaphors like growth Mm -hmm. right to talk about the possibilities for human moral life 
right? So I think there are possibilities. One of the challenges is we haven't gotten to, to use your metaphor, we haven't really gotten to the disease, right? And the disease is not just about the things you and I've been talking about. It's not just about the weight of history. It's not just about the structures of our cognitive apparatuses. It's also about the way we've organized our economies and our political lives, right? So there's a way in which race thinking can be mobilized to do the work of certain kinds of economic elites, right? There are lots and lots of Marxists and socialists who are happy to tell a version of that story. That's part of the story too, especially when it comes to policy, right? That's right. Yeah. So the, the structural sort of inertia that the system has uh, is going to be an additional issue. Um, but on the optimistic side, Paul, uh, I don't know if you agree with this. When I look back uh, to the previous generation and I look forward to the next, I see a difference. I see a positive trend in this dimension. Do you mm-hmm. get There are certainly positive signs. Uh, Some of the markers of the old fashioned forms of racial dominance and racial injustice, those have been repudiated soundly uh, across large swaths of the public, right? So there, there are certainly encouraging signs, which is why it's important to insist on the argument we had with the most complicated form of post racialism, right? The, The argument that insists on the fact that not all change is good change, right? Sometimes things change in one place and they for the better and they change for the worse in another place. We have a tendency, especially in the United States, to take, to seize on every, every possible glimmer of hope as a sign that we have been redeemed and we have overcome <laughs> our, our, our sins, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's just too quick, right? Uh, for reasons you pointed to. So yeah, there are positive signs uh, I work in aesthetics. I work in philosophy of art. Many of the positive signs show us show up every day on our screens, right? I can see people having relationships on my TV screen that I could not have seen 25 years ago, right? Combinations of people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds because they wouldn't have gotten on TV in those combinations before. So yeah, there are there are all sorts of positive signs. Yeah, but there are other things happening at the same time that are less encouraging. Yeah, there are positive signs. The, the question is, how long will it take? And life is too short for most of us. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. So from a purely, so you have a section in here, uh, how to do things with post-racialism from prophecy to pragmatism. Mm. Uh, you say making a post-racialism prescriptive and visionary rather than descriptive and extrapolative. Mm. In short, making it prophetic rather than prognostic might block the worry that the view just gets the world wrong. So what do you mean by that? Oh, um, that's me bending over backwards, trying to be generous to the (laughs) racialist. I want to be very clear. It's probably too late because we've been talking for a good while now. I do not endorse anything I would call post-racialism. I think there are forms of it that are more interesting and more complicated than others. But I think the, the sheer act of mobilizing that language is politically and ethically problematic. So even when I get to the most complicated and interesting form of it that has interesting possibilities, I think the sheer act of mobilizing that language does the same work as that language from John Roberts's opinion, right? Mm-hmm. That, now that said, what does it mean to talk about a prophetic form of post-racialism? It means something a bit like what people in South Africa have done, uh, did most clearly at the height of the anti-apartheid movement, but this language has 
has uh, experienced a bit of a resurgence in recent years when they talk about non-racialism, right? So for people in that space, uh, a, a set of debates a bit like the one we've been discussing unfolded. It was in a differently politicized context, so the language landed differently. But there are people on what we would think of as the far left who were perfect, like people who were committed to a certain mode of Marxian materialist analysis or communist analysis, who were perfectly happy to say, look, this race talk is a problem. It needs to go away. We need to be non-racial, right? Yeah. Because they were trying to tell a story about they were trying to get to the point of doing the thing I mentioned a little while ago, using a, an anti-racist critique to get to the heart of the matter, to get to the places in our political economies, for example, where the disease has taken root, right? Instead of dealing with symptoms. They use the language of non-racialism to do that. If we could use the language of post-racialism to do that, that would be the best case scenario. But my claim is that the language itself prevents that from happening in our context. But that's an empirical claim, right? So I need what I need to do is write a grant, get a, find a partner who's a sociologist and or a psychologist, and go do the study. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think it is it's definitely uh, a worthwhile pursuit. Uh, the, the language of post-racialism, um, perhaps, as you say, we are too optimistic, too willing uh, to accept things are getting better. Yeah. Uh, too ready to look away um, from what we act, what we can actually measure. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's all sort of symptomatic of this this issue, right? Um, and so, so you know, there, there are two two questions. One is, if you believe things are getting better, uh, is there a transition that 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 you would you would want? If things are not getting better then, you know, it's a different question altogether. Um, I don't know if I think things are getting better. I have trouble with, with uh, analyses at, at that high level of abstraction. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the reasons I, I refer to pragmatism in the article you've been mentioning. Yeah. Uh, for me, what it is to be a pragmatist, philosophically speaking, is to insist on engaging with the details of certain kinds of particular problem situations. Mm -hmm. And so I get uncomfortable, I get nosebleeds when we talk about things, right? Capital T getting better, capital B. Um, in some ways, sure, there are positive signs. In some ways, there are not. In some settings, there are positive signs. In some settings, they are not, right? So here's what that means concretely for me. In places like the U.S., we get our sense of how things are going from doing things like looking at Fox News and CNN and MSNBC. And there are only certain kinds of things they're going to look at. Right. Yeah. Which is why it took so long for what was happening in Flint, Michigan, to come to light. Right. Because there are all sorts of concrete settings in which people are, as my mentor, one of my mentors, Cornell West, would have said, catching hell. Right. Mm. For real. And no one, no one in scare quotes. Right. Because it's not on MSNBC until it's been going on for two years. No one's paying attention. Right. And, and a lot of that is mediated by, facilitated by, made possible by certain modes of race thinking, right? So in that sense, it's hard for me to, 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 to accept a sort of blanket judgment on whether things are getting better or worse. If I, if I had to pick one, I'd say things are getting worse because look at what's going on in the U.S. Senate. Look at what's, <laughs> what's going on in the, in the Capitol for the last four years, five years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I get nosebleeds at that level of abstraction. 
Yeah, that, that is true. Uh, but conceptually, this is a very elegant uh, notion, right? That the language of post-racialism, uh, as, as it exists today, you argue, if I understand this correctly, Paul, you argue it is uh, confusing at best um, or, or more problematic, um, most likely. And so, um, you know, you have a section here, dialogue, deliberation, and the movement. Um, do, are there sort of practical views as to how we would think about that language in the post-racial uh, environment, if it exists? Oh, well, I think so. I mean, so I should, I should be clear about what I mean when I, when I make this appeal to the way the language works when it gets mobilized. I'm not trying to make a, 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 a claim about uh, anything like conceptual necessity. It's not that something in the form of the language itself requires this outcome. It's that using the language in the ways that are common in places like this routinely have certain kinds of outcomes. So if we shift the conditions, if we shift the way we orient ourselves to this language, then yeah, different kinds of things are possible. Which brings me to your question. Yeah. What would it mean to do this? What would it mean to create different conditions? Once again, this is why I, I refer to pragmatism every now and again. Uh, I was raised intellectually on the work of people like John Dewey. John Dewey has a great many challenges and problems, the late 19th century, early 20th century philosopher, John Dewey. Uh, but one of the things he did very nicely was insist on an interest in certain specific and concrete mechanisms mm. for the formation of human persons as ethical personalities, right? So he was very interested in public education, for example, right? This is one of the places where the rubber hits the road. This is why it matters that in the United States, a certain um, set of forces in the, on the conservative side of the political spectrum at a certain moment took over school districts and school boards all over the country, right? Because then they have their fingers on the levers of power in a certain sense with respect to the formation of not just public opinion, mm -hmm. but the formation of citizens, right? Yeah. So it is important for people who are interested in these kinds of issues to engage at that level. It can't just be persuasion all the way down. I can't just tell you a story about how racism is wrong. I have to engage with the concrete institutions that we social animals have created to reproduce ourselves in future generations, right? I have to engage with the concrete mechanisms and institutions that we've created to mold public opinion, to mobilize, generate, sustain public ignorance about things that matter. We have to get dirty with those things, right? It can't just be persuasion all the way down. Right, right. Yeah, so um, if I understand you correctly, Paul, you know, the, the abstract notions, uh, the beautiful theories, the grand concepts such as universalism, they're all interesting, but given the structural friction in, in society, you have to start at the basement and, and you have to do things that are, you know, sort of practical and tactical. Is that what you're, what you're saying? Something like that, I think, yeah. Um, it is important. So I, I have lived my whole life in the academy. No, well, not all, well, not all of it, obviously. Um, uh, but I take seriously the life of the mind. I think it's important for people to think hard thoughts and do the kinds of things that uh, higher education institutions, for example, make possible. But it is important that we do those things without pretending that there is not uh, a world outside off off campus, right? Yeah. In 
which the ideas land and get mobilized in particular ways, right? Um, so again, I, I keep saying this, and, and maybe this isn't the right language for it, but it political life, ethical life is not and cannot be persuasion all the way down, right? In part for reasons that, as we said earlier, behavioral economists are all over, but also because of the things that Dewey, as I said earlier, following in the work in the wake of Aristotle and others, um, in part for reasons related to what it means to create the inhabitants of human societies, right? We do all of this stuff to create the conditions under which we can engage with each other rationally and, and engage in the work of persuasion and attempted persuasion. But there's a lot of stuff that frames that, and you have to, you have to take that those framing considerations seriously. Yeah, um, I, I understand that. I, I am somewhat pessimistic, Paul. Um, mm -hmm. Given everything that we have seen, you know, uh, I think in the U.S. last uh, 12 years are very symptomatic of a, an issue that is you, you could um, sort of fool yourself uh, thinking that things are getting better. But what, what we're really doing is putting bandages on, on a wound that, you know, that, that's festering. Um, so it doesn't show for a period of time, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. So, you know, I keep thinking many of the policy ideas, at the end of the day, I don't know if it's actually going to make a difference. Uh, I mean, this is too pessimistic a view. <laughs> I don't know what you think. No, I, I think there are ample grounds for pessimism. There are ample grounds for pessimism. Uh, but for me, that is true in part because it's so tempting to ascend to the nosebleed level of abstraction, right? Uh, and when we get into the nitty gritty of particular contexts, it's often possible to find people pushing back, right? It's often possible to find people engaging with uh, the untoward social conditions that we face in ways that are profoundly encouraging. So Deborah McGee has written a wonderful book that is in part about this very thing. It's called The Sum of Us. And one of the things she does is she goes through and she talks about sort of the core of the book is she talks about the way uh, considerations of race and racism have continually frustrated what you might think of as progressive policy innovations or initiatives or intervention. Mm -hmm. And that's discouraging, right? But then she shows in case after case after case, this is what it looks like when people push back, right? She points to particular settings in which particular humans are doing particular things to push back. And something like this has been true for a very long time. People became, uh, people became enamored with the Black Lives Matter movement at a certain moment in our very recent history. But there's a way in which one of the things that movement did was make visible activists that had been on the ground for a long time, right? Uh, that we just had not attended to. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that there are ample grounds for pessimism, but there are also grounds for encouragement. I will not say optimism for reasons we can come to if you like, yes. uh, but there are grounds for encouragement. If we look at the concrete activities, people in particular settings are undertaking to try to push back. And then the ethical challenge is to try to find ways to build on those, to knit them together, to advance them and escalate them. Right. And so, so, so if, if there's one overarching idea in the essay, Paul, what would that be? Uh, which one are we talking about? Uh, post-racialism one? Taking post-racialism seriously essay. Oh, I think it's the one we said, right? That it's tempting to tell ourselves 
pleasing stories about all of the progress we've made, mm. but telling ourselves those stories not only obscures important realities, it exacerbates the new forms of the problem, right? And so we have to be very careful about how we use this language and we have to be very, very careful about how we engage our histories of racial politics. So that might be the moral of the story, I think. Right, right. Um, we'll take a quick break, Paul. When we come back, we'll talk, um, talk about some of the recent uh, uh, news pieces on ABC and Washington Post. Okay, look forward to it. Thanks. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. We're back, Paul. Um, you have a few opinion pieces uh, on ABC recently, and one of them, uh, I want to be a good man, Martin Luther King Jr., and the challenge of moral perfectionism. Um, what is moral perfectionism in this context? Uh, well, it means, this is tricky language. Different people use it in different ways. Uh, I'm using it in a way that I learned from the philosopher Stanley Cavell. He thinks of moral perfectionism as what he calls a dimension of the moral life that stretches across different modes of ethical theory or moral theory. So you can be a moral perfectionist and be a utilitarian. You can be a moral perfectionist and be a Kantian. You can be a virtue theorist. It's a way of orienting oneself to the work of ethical living that is not reducible to these sort of theoretical differences. So what is what is this thing that knits together this approach? It's he seems to think uh, it's a willingness to subject oneself to continual and ongoing critique yeah. uh, for the sake of attempting to actualize uh, or realize one's potential. That's not quite the right way to put it, uh, but it's uh, it's a kind of never-ending aspiration to improve upon oneself, right? It's a kind of asymptotic uh, vision of the ethical life. I'm never going to get there, but I, I can always strive to be better. Hmm. Yeah, you, you say here, a perfectionist in this sense is not a person who links their sense of accomplishment to impossibly high standards, someone for whom nothing is good enough. Uh, but it's somebody who at least um, attempting to get better all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a perfectionist. When, when I think about morality, though, Paul, you know, I sometimes think of morality as sort of a binary construct. Um, you know, either you have you are moral or you are not. Um, that is not the case. Uh, well, that's not the way I think of it, but I'm not an ethicist. So, you know, you, should, you <laughs> might want to uh, take this with a grain of salt. Um, I don't do ethical theory for a living. Um, I dabble for the sake of telling the stories I want to tell. Uh, but the way I think, so one of the things I do is I distinguish with many people, this is not an innovation in any sense, I distinguish ethics from morality, right? So yeah. for some of us to talk about morality is to talk about the ethics of duty and obligation, right? Um, I'm less interested in that than I am in ethics, which 
is broader than the moral. Yeah. Um, ethics has to do with living well. Ethics has to do with the way I think of it, something like virtue, which is not reducible necessarily to obligation and duty and that sort of thing. Um, so it is certainly the case that once you have ethical standards in place or moral systems in place, that you can crank out principles or standards that allow you to evaluate modes of behavior or states of personality, right, for their fidelity to those standards. So you can say, yes, you have behaved morally or not. Yes, that is certainly right. I'm less interested in that than in the way the, the inevitable decay yeah. and obsolescence of those standards, right? So William James and one of the great American philosopher and psychologist, William James, in one place says, the highest moral life consists in the willingness to break rules that have grown too narrow for the actual case. Yeah. What does that mean? It means that the moral life is very much like jurisprudence, right? What do courts do? Courts look at laws that are on the books and they look at the cases in front of them. And the law could not have contemplated the existence of this case because that's the novelty of human experience. And the judge decides how to apply the standard to this novel set of facts, right? Which means in the limit case that judges are making law or they're doing something that expands the boundaries of what the framers of the legislation intended. The moral life is very much like that. You have these principles, they give you guidance, they point you in the right direction maybe, but then you have to figure out what to do with this novel fact situation, this novel problematic situation. And sometimes that means, yeah, this rule that I thought was good, I'm going to throw that out the window because I now live in a world in which this rule is obsolete. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, so so two things say one is nobody is perfect. Yes. And so the idea that you can you can understand that uh it's an important important step. Mm -hmm. Uh and then information in some sense is dynamic. You know, we, we have this debate all the time. Uh we say this is how things were done in sixteen hundreds mm -hmm. and a lot of people are trying to do what we did in 1600s as if there is something absolute about that, right? Um, there is nothing absolute about anything, really, because information is changing. And so if I understand this correctly, Paul, there is a process that you can adhere to that, that continuously improves yourself. So is that what you mean by uh, you, you have a section here called King's Perfectionist Faith? Uh, is that what you mean? Something like that, yeah. I, mean, I want to be careful. And the language of perfectionism is risky in part because it invites a certain kind of misreading. So in speaking of perfectionism in this sense, the point is not to establish a standard of perfection that people must then meet, yeah. right? Uh, because that sets you up for failure, right? It's to commit oneself to the ethical discipline of engaging in self-excavation and self-criticism mm. in the face of an aspiration to live up to what might be an unattainable idea, right? So it's, it's not sort of vernacular perfectionism. It's a little mushier. Uh, so what interested me with respect to this idea in the life of Martin King is that um, there are moments in his career in which he seems to be embracing something like this. He gave a sermon near the end of his life in which he said, look, I, I, I have failed. I haven't achieved the things I wanted to achieve. I haven't always been the person I wanted to be. But what matters is that I tried. 
right? And and he tells stories about biblical stories about people in the same situation. They failed and they were horrible in certain respects, but they tried. And the trying is in some ways what matters, right? Hmm. Um, to me, there's a way in which that is the essence of perfectionism, right? Instead of the essentializing judgment that says, oh my goodness, I did something very bad, therefore I am a bad person. Hmm. Or that says, oh my goodness, I failed at what I did, I am a failure. It says, look, a human life is dynamic and evolving and changing. It's a matter of growth, or not stasis, right? And so, yes, I have failed, but I failed in the pursuit of something better. And I tried in good faith to achieve something better. And that has to matter, right? Uh, we find wonderful language like this for this. Um, um, well, I'm blanking on the language right now. Uh, but there's this uh, wonderful language from one of our towering figures in literature who says, uh, yes, you failed. Now the challenge is to fail better. Right? <laughs> uh, and there, there's something to that. And a lot of our design theorists have, have taken that up as a kind of mantra. Right. One of the burdens of contemporary design is to make good mistakes. Right. Because then you learn and then you're better. Right. Right. Yeah. As you say here, we have to remember his commitment to the ongoing work of self-making and of self-criticism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, we have to remember his frequent appeals to humility and simplicity. Um, and, and so, you know, it seems to me that th there is this realization that nobody is perfect and you can always get better. Um, and so it doesn't, you know, the, the immediate outcome is just one data point. Um, you can always get better from it, right? Is that the idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big part of the idea. And, uh, but as big a part of the idea for me is the commitment to a kind of ethical self-discipline or an ethical discipline of self-excavation, right? You can always get better, but the key to getting better is to be willing to subject yourself to criticism and scrutiny, right? Yeah. Uh, we, in America, we're particularly bad at this, right? <laughs> we're eager to celebrate our achievements, right? To celebrate our successes, and less willing to look at the respects in which even our successes carry within them the seeds of failure, right? Uh, so the self-scrutiny is crucial. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Paul. Um, yeah, I like the term ethical discipline. You know, uh, graduate schools in the U.S. have uh, a large number of ethics courses. Mm. And you know, the premise there is if you take a class in ethics, you become ethical. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it, it's really, uh, uh, really inexplicable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in some sense, for me, ethical, like you say, it's a discipline. It, 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 is, a, it is a behavior. And not just behavior, it's sort of integral to your thought process. Um, so it's not content that's going to change how you behave. It, it's actually self, uh, self-criticism and really self-making, as you say in the paper. Yeah, self-making in the context, to go back to the earlier part of our conversation, in the context of social life, right? So we're not isolated monads. We engage in dialogic um, encounters. We engage in the exchange of reasons, right, and attempts at persuasion. And so we do this in conversation with others. And the ethical languages that we develop become resources in these uh, ongoing attempts at 
self-excavation and self-critique. Uh, so, it, but it's not an isolated. It's not an isolated activity. We do it in uh, conversation with others. But there is an inescapable individual burden, right? This is the kind of existential dimension of this, which is why King's sermons are so powerful here. There's an inescapable individual burden mm -hmm. that involves each of us taking seriously uh, the challenge of orienting ourselves consciously and critically to the conditions of our own making, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's crucial. Yeah, yeah. You have another opinion piece here, Living on the Knife's Edge, George Floyd and the Peel of Afro-Pessimism. Yeah, so, so what do you mean by Afro-Pessimism? Well, um, I should say this is not my language. This was my one of uh, a handful of, of attempts I've made in, uh, in the last several months, uh, a little over a year, to grapple with an increasingly popular way of thinking about what we've been calling racial politics, right? So Afro-pessimism is a view, uh, or is a school of thought, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's very slippery. People who ascribe to it define it in different ways. So if I sound hesitant, it's because I'm trying to respect this diversity of opinion. But it's a, a school of thought that orients, that recommends a particular kind of orientation to the conditions of racial politics in the contemporary world. That's very broad. What is this orientation? Well, the orientation declares itself in the name, Afro-pessimism, right? And so the sort of crudest way to capture it is to say that it is very important for people who think of themselves as Afro-pessimists to accept the degree to which uh, the contemporary world has been structured in racial dominance in a particularly anti-Black vein. Mm -hmm. And so there are people like Frank Wilderson who's recently written a book with, uh, that is called Afro-pessimism. Uh, it is a book that sort of encapsulates his evolving view on this. He's been working at it for a very long time. There are other people, Hortense Spillers and Jarrett Sexton and others um, who've been doing this as well. Uh, but in this book, Frank Wilderson says things like, look, you have to understand that in the contemporary world, black folks are not human, right? What it is to be human is to be not black, right? The category of the human excludes blackness, right? He makes claims like this. Um, and he's after something very important that is importantly right. I don't tend to put it that way, that strongly. I don't have the same view of language and its workings that he does. So I don't find it useful to put it quite that way, but I know what he's after. He's trying to capture uh, the degree to which anti-blackness is baked into the modern world. And that's, that's importantly right. Right. Yeah, I mean, more broadly, I think there is a psyche question, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know, we can analyze all of this information. We can try to make better policies. All of that might be useful, as you say, from a pragmatic perspective. But at the end of the day, there is a there is a damage to the psyche that is um, that is more difficult to mend in some ways. Hmm. Do you see it that way? Um, that's surely right. I mean, so one of the, the insidious things about racial injustice is that it works on so many levels, right? Uh, uh, racial injustice is something we find uh, structuring our public spaces, or you think about residential segregation, right? It's something that structures the movement of goods and services and people and resources around the world, right? Uh, it, it works at that sort of very broad level, but it also is able to do that because it works 
very intimately and shapes the self, right? Or, or invites us to think of ourselves uh, in light of certain kinds of reigning racial discourses. So yeah, that's a crucial part of it. That was a part that was crucial for uh, Steve Biko and the Black Consciousness Movement. It's crucial for a certain strain, strain of Black nationalism, right? That it's true in its way for a certain important strain of white nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you white people have given up on what makes you noble, right? This is why the language of make America great again resonates in a certain way with some folks that we wish it didn't resonate with because it captures the sense that whiteness must be bound up with greatness. And to the extent that it is not in the way that we're used to from looking at black and white films from the 1940s, right? Then something has fallen apart, right? And chaos has come again. So yeah, racism works at that very deep level. What's in interesting about Afro-pessimism is that it, its most eloquent advocates explicitly argue that this is not the heart of the matter for them. So the work of pessimism for them is not to capture the affect or the mental state necessarily. Yeah. It's to refuse a certain kind of redemptive orientation, right? It's to refuse the thought that suffering must be redemptive, that justice is on the way, right? That we're in a heroic narrative and we're the heroes of this. They want to refuse all of that and insist that we take the bad news seriously, right? Um, so I want to, I would want to be careful with the the thinking about the way the, the language of pessimism resonates for those folks. Yeah, yeah. So you conclude this essay by saying, when you live on a knife's edge, balanced in pain to avoid perhaps greater peril, any kind of fall will hurt. You may have reasons to get back up and try again, and you may give voice to those reasons, but trying again will still hurt and sometimes to stay sane to be sure, but also to measure out the cost, to measure what it will cost you to get back up. Mm -hmm. You have to give up, uh, you have to give the pain it's due. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of sums it, right? Um, it, it, is, it is pessimistic um, and uh, for good reasons, <laughs> um, because we don't really see um, a lot, at least I don't see a way out yeah. uh, from the nightmare that we are living. Well, so this is the thing that's very slippery about Afro-pessimism, right? So I think the, the passages you just quoted capture something very important for Afro-pessimists. And again, to be clear, I don't think I'm one, uh, yeah. but I was trying to take seriously the view because it's in its cruder forms, it's easy not to take it seriously. Uh, yeah. And it's less crude forms are very hard to understand sometimes. Uh, but I don't think I am one. I was just I was trying to take the view seriously. What gives it its resonance for me is its insistence on taking the pain seriously, taking seriously the costs of the struggle. Right. Yeah. But then many of the folks I've read in this vein are very clear. Look, I'm not trying to tell you we can't win. I just don't think the language of victory captures what comes next, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's, a, there's an important conceptual and discursive break for these folks, right? Wilderson is very clear about this. Um, some of you wanna talk about racial justice like it's a game and we can win and the language we use to talk about the struggle will capture what comes after and that's just wrong. The world as it stands is, baked, is, is based on foundations that have to be uprooted yeah and they can be uprooted but then something else will happen and we don't have language for it yet 
right? So it's a very slippery move. It, it has the shape of lots of sort of post-Egalian moves, the end of history, right? The, the current ways of going on will end and something post will happen and we don't know how to describe it. But they're, they're very clear. We're not trying to say it's hopeless. We're trying to say the language of hope doesn't capture what you need right now, right? That's a very slippery move. Yeah, what you need right now and what you need in the future. Right, exactly. To get yeah. to the future, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's a powerful move, right? There, there, there's a very real sense. And this is why I wanted to take the view seriously. Yeah. Um, there are very real and important ways in which appeals to hope can be disabling, right? This is one of the challenges that liberation theologians brought to certain kinds of traditional uh, religious appeals, religious, religious justice appeals, right? You people want to hold out for some pie in the sky, right? But we need to do some stuff in the world here, right? So don't talk to me about heaven yet. Let's talk about what's happening here, right? And so putting your hope and your faith and your trust in the guy in the clouds can turn your attention away from doing what you need to do here. So that was a kind of liberation theology move. And the Afro-pessimists sometimes have a similar move make a similar move when it comes to appeals to political hope, right? This hope talk is getting in the way. Y'all need to do something else. Right, right. Yeah, so I, so I want to finish up with your recent piece on, on Washington Post, uh, Delusions, Justice, Accountability, and Freedom in America. And um, this is about a book by Michael Denzel Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's the book about? Well, it's a peculiar sort of constrained memoir. Um, he's a writer in the, in the tradition of the literary essayist. He's trying to capture the moment uh, that comes after, that comes in the wake of, of Donald Trump's uh, victory in the presidential campaign in 2016. And so he works through a lot of the things that we've been talking about. He, he works through the degree to which contemporary American politics is rooted in a history that we have not excavated, right? He works through some of the explicit resonances between our contemporary structures and uh, 19th century structures, right? The way the Senate is constructed, for example, the Electoral College is constructed is, is a legacy not of the 19th century, but of the 18th century, and it was part of a an attempt to accommodate certain kinds of racial politics, white supremacist politics. And so he works through all of that, but in an essayistic spirit that also captures some of the affective depth and existential depth that attaches to the Afro-pessimist view that we were just talking about. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a lamentation in its way. Uh, it's an erudite lamentation uh, that's meant to capture the experience of the Trump years. Yeah, I mean, um... You know, he, uh, the, the book is called Stakes is High, Life After the American Dream. Uh, Life mm -hmm. After the American Dream uh, speaks to a lot of people, including immigrants uh, to this country, right? Um, the, the, the dreams in some sense have changed and, and continue, uh, continue to change. So in some sense, you know, I had another conversation with, uh, with your colleague at Vanderbilt. Um, it, you know, there's a social contract that an immigrant gets, gets into uh, with a country. And, and oftentimes, you know, you're given a box um, with an expectation of set of goodies in it, but you haven't opened the box yet. <laughs>
Uh, and uh, you could get surprised when you open the box, right? Um, and so, yeah, it, it's more more generally. Um, I go back to this this uh, this issue of um, the damage done to the psyche uh, of a person of society uh, of a group that is not easily mended. Um, you know, uh, by by a policy reversal, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. But there's a way in which this brings us full circle in our conversation. We started out talking about uh, uh, the degree to which humans are social animals, right? And that our experiences are irremediably bound up with our social circles and the settings we uh, find ourselves in in which we're socialized and so forth, right? Uh, so it's important to keep track when we talk about racial oppression and structures of racial dominance and injustice. It's important to keep track of the ways in which people have persisted under those conditions and resisted those conditions in community, right? So this is one of the wonderful things about, for example, Toni Morrison's uh, important work or August Wilson's important work. Uh, those wonderful, brilliant writers were determined to chronicle certain of the negative dimensions of what uh, Brother Smith calls the American dream. But they did it while also insisting on the degree to which black folks under many conditions met that world together, right? They met that world in the context of their communities, right? Uh, in dynamic and complicated relationships, but in relationships. So it's not as if racism or racial oppression or injustice works directly on individuals who are isolated and cannot and have no resources, have no bulwarks against this. Community is one of the resources, yeah. right? Um, but yes, that is, that is certainly right. There is a way in which, as we've been saying, racism works on multiple levels. One of those levels is the psyche. And this takes us back to the things we were saying about behavioral economics and so forth. One of the most powerful uh, developments for me in contemporary race theory and philosophy is a growing interest in social epistemology, political epistemology, uh, theories of the production of racial ignorance and innocence, right? I'm working on a book that's trying to draw out uh, the language of racial innocence from James Baldwin to talk about uh, the ways in which we insist on not knowing things that matter when it comes to uh, our fellows and our social landscapes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in some sense, we are just getting started. <laughs> mm. uh, I mm. think uh, I think that's what I would take away from this uh, conversation, Paul. Uh, yeah, there are many different things that could be done. Uh, much of it uh, perhaps tactical and and more practical. Uh, but those need to be there um, for us to make progress. And uh, we are, you know, it sounds to me that we're just getting started. Well, I hope we're getting started. Uh, as we have said, there's amp there are ample grounds for pessimism. Uh, we may be going backwards instead of starting to go forwards, but we shall see. We shall see. There are a lot of people on the ground doing important yeah, work. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for spending time with me. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, 
please reach out to info@scientificsense.com. at scientificsense.com.